This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. When you hear cage-free eggs, do you picture hens outside roaming around? Well, that's what those egg companies want you to think. Really, cage-free hens live crammed indoors. Meanwhile, Vital Farms hens are pasture-raised, on actual pastures, with plenty of grass and sunshine for healthier hens and better eggs. Vital Farms pasture-raised. Visit vitalfarms.com coupon and look for us in the black carton at the grocery store. everyone, this is Insight. I'm Ali and with me from the other side of the world is Charlie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I think I told you last week school went back. Well, my daughter started kindergarten a few days ago, so there were so many tears. (laughs) She is so tiny and petite, so it was kind of comical seeing her in the smallest size uniform available, yet it almost reached her ankles. I think that made it worse for me. I cried so much oh that's hilarious <laughs> I, I mean I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> my son started speech therapy and so far he's worn various superhero costumes every time so if anyone follows me on Facebook you've seen his array of superhero clothes he's the cutest this week is a case from Australia and it's a more recent one from 2012 When a mother of three young daughters, Alison Baden-Clay, disappeared from an upper-class suburb of Brisbane, she went for an early morning walk and she never came home. Her husband, Jared, was later convicted of her murder, then reduced to manslaughter on appeal, and later the murder conviction was reinstated. This is a case I knew of when it was going on, but I didn't follow it closely. For those who are interested in learning more after this episode, there is a thorough, and I mean really thorough, book called The Murder of Alison Baden-Clay by David Murray. He's a journalist who was involved in the case. It's a really good book and worth the read. I will stick the links up on our website in the show notes and maybe in the Facebook group as well if someone reminds me. And before we begin, this is a listener suggestion from Melanie, so thank you, Melanie. Alison June Dickey was the daughter of Priscilla and Jeff Dickey, and she was born July 1st, 1968 in Ipswich, which is in Queensland, Australia. Alison grew up in your typical normal working class family in your typical normal working class neighbourhood. Her father Jeff was a fireman and her mother Priscilla was a librarian at Alison's school. Alison had dreams of being a performer from just a little girl, She was a ballerina and she travelled the world dancing. But something I can relate to, she hit puberty and she grew into her body, so she quit dancing. And then she started teaching. She would later teach at a dancing school her daughters would later attend. Alison studied psychology at university and from her dancing days, she had a love for travelling. She would travel around doing summer seasonal type work after she finished university. She was described as beautiful, she took part in beauty pageants, and she was just the kind of person that when you would meet, you would immediately just fall in love with her. Now, Jared Clay, and I'm actually going to apologize if I accidentally call him Gerard, because that's how his name is spelled, but it, I believe, and Allie and I have come to the conclusion that it's pronounced more like Jared, but I'm sorry if I say Gerard. And I will probably say Jared, but I will try. Jared. Jared, there, I'm messing it up already. Okay, Jared Clay, he would later become Jared Baden Clay. He was the son of Nigel and Elaine Clay. We'll get to the name change in a second, and I will work really hard to suppress my eye roll while I discuss it. He was born September 9th, 1970 in England. His family would move to Rhodesia, which is now modern-day Zimbabwe, when Jared was only a toddler. His father had actually grown up there. But due to the political unrest, to put it mildly, political unrest, they then moved to Australia in 1980 and ended up in Toowoomba in Queensland. It's this move to Australia that would mark the change in the name where the family started referring to themselves as the Baden Clays. Now, where that all came from, I'm going to keep it brief because it's not actually that interesting, but Jared, and I guess his parents as well, but Jared's greatest claim to fame was that he was the great-grandson of Lord Baden-Powell. 
Lord Baden-Powell is known mostly as the founder of Boy Scouts, but he was also a military hero. But this connection to Baden-Powell was through Baden-Powell's daughter, and she married a man with the surname Clay. So Jared's father had this world-famous grandfather, but no way to let everyone know about it. So on entering Australia, Baden was added to the family surname so that they had an easy conversation in to drop that little fact. Jared, maybe even more than his parents, really clung to this connection as he self-promoted. His great-grandfather had been dead for 30 years before he was even born, but he regularly brought up how the scout values that his grandfather set up were the foundation of his own value system and his business ethics. Every interview I see with him online, he brings it up. Yeah, I, I listened to multiple interviews of him bringing it up. Jared joined the Army Reserves after high school and was a training officer and simultaneously studied accounting and computing at was what was then the Darling Downs Institute of Advanced Education. There are mixed reports on what Jared was like growing up. It seems consistent that he was ambitious and could be charming when he wanted or needed to be, but aside from that... I'm not sure people's views of him as a child aren't colored by his actions as an adult, but this ambitious and sometimes charming person is also how former business associates described him as an adult, so I think that's pretty consistent throughout his life. In 1995, Alison Dickey and Jared Baden-Clay met while both working at a travel agency. She was a manager and she was having problems with her computer and Jared helped her fix it. He had a single friend, so he sets her up with him to have a double date with Jared and his girlfriend at the time. But at the dinner, there was obvious chemistry between Alison and Jared, so they get together. After a lot of makeups and breakups, Alison marries Jared in 1997. The couple would travel the world. But after a bad reaction to an anti-malaria medication, which causes Alison to start a long battle with anxiety and depression something that she struggles with right up until her death, they move to Brookfield in Queensland and they have three daughters. Jared eventually opens up his own real estate agency, which was fairly successful in the beginning. Alison was a stay-at-home mum, and as I said earlier, she taught ballet at the same dance school she danced at as a child. Now, after the birth of her first two children, Alison develops quite severe postpartum depression. She does end up seeing a psychiatrist and she's prescribed medication which does help her. So knowing the signs, she sees a psychiatrist when she is still pregnant with her third child, which I think we can agree is responsible and is consistent with the person her family reports that she was. Jared would attend appointments with Alison during this time and he would say that he didn't believe in depression and he believed Alison was making this all up. And all of this is relevant, and you'll understand why a bit later. In 2008, Jared started having an affair with a fellow real estate agent at his workplace, Tony McHugh. Jared gave Tony the usual lines. The marriage was all but over. He didn't love his wife. He was just staying with her for the kids. Now, I know my voice is editorializing a bit, but I really (laughs) don't like this guy, and I'm really trying not to sound quite so disdaining of him, but... But that's hard because I I have a lot of disdain for him as a human being. So I'm going to try to rein it in. Whether Jared really loved Tony or not, who knows? But Tony loved him, and she believed that they would one day marry, so much so that three months into their affair, she left her husband. Now, Jared did not leave Allison. This affair continued off and on up until Allison's disappearance in 2012, They would meet after work, they communicated through emails, and some of these emails were X-rated, very much so, and they would be used against Jared later in trial. Like I said, we don't really know how much Jared really loved Tony. He continued to pursue other affairs, essentially cheating on his wife and his mistress. Two of the affairs were with other real estate agents, and there were whisperings of others. And these were affairs he sought out, not, oh... You know, we were just talking and it just happened. In early 2011, Jared created a profile on Adult Friend Finder, and this was a pre-Tinder sort of website for people looking for hookups. During this time, Jared's behavior began to spiral. 
there were complaints against him from coworkers and customers about this inappropriate behavior. For instance, he asked a particular staff member if she ever had a threesome, which is not appropriate workplace banter. He would also go and hug customers and staff members after a sale, and that was how he excused his behavior. His affairs weren't a well-kept secret around the real estate scene, and people didn't want their business to be associated with him. Between that behavior not living within his means, and frankly not being trusted in the industry, his business started circling the drain. He was borrowing significant sums of money from family and friends just to stay afloat. And his business partners were demanding to be paid out, but the sales weren't happening. Jared's secret life all comes to an end when in September of 2011, so about six months before Allison's disappearance, Allison is contacted by her mother from her daughter's school and she is told about Jared's affair with Tony. She, of course, confronts Jared, who admits to the affair, but tells Alison that he loves her and he wants to fix the marriage, and he will end the affair immediately. Understandably, Alison doesn't entirely trust Jared, so she gives him a list of demands, all of which are completely reasonable under the circumstances. That she checks his phone each day, that they go to marriage counselling, and that she comes to work with him at the real estate. They also install a Find My Friend app onto each other's phone, so Alison knows where Jared is at all times. And these are pretty standard things to help rebuild trust after an affair. I know if you look at it from taking the affair out of the context, it seems very controlling, but this is what you do when you're trying to rebuild your relationship and trust after an affair. You show that you're you're going to be completely transparent. And as you said, it wasn't something that just happened. He was seeking these affairs out. And it wasn't a five-minute affair. This affair went on for a, quite a significant length of time. Yes, this affair lasted years. It was a significant relationship, not just sex. And that's difficult to come back from. And he told her everything. She knew it was a long-standing relationship, the affair. She knew that they were sleeping together. She knew they went on dates. She knew they went away together. This new system worked out for a while, but eventually Jared started his affair with Tony again in December of 2011. So he made it from September to December. Good work, Jared. He promised that he would leave Allison before July 1st, 2012. So he basically asked for a couple of months to get things together. July 1st also happens to be Allison's birthday. So just to show you again what kind of self-centered behavior was really typical with Jared. As he's rekindling things with Tony, he's still going through the motions at home with Allison that he's working to repair their marriage. And there was this one exercise that their marriage counselor suggested, and it was that, that once a week for about 15 minutes, Allison was allowed to ask anything she wanted about the affair, his feelings, their relationship. 15 minutes a week gave her some time and space to talk about these things, which she would need, but it also didn't let the hurt and betrayal take over every conversation they had. The last time Allison and Jared were to do this weekly exercise was the night of April 19th. And Allison would also keep a diary of all the questions and answers that Jared would give her. She had in her diary a map of Tony's apartment, and all of that is used as evidence later on. Allison kept very detailed diaries of her feelings. This was really her outlet for yes. her feelings. She Then she had where she wrote down her questions about their affair and the details and that kind of thing. But then she also had another one that was, I think, from Dr. Phil or something. It was some yes. thing she found where it would say, I feel most vulnerable when, kind of fill in the blank type thing. Yes. So, I mean, she really, these diaries, I mean, the, they will absolutely break your heart. She put so much of herself into them. And this is getting ahead of ourselves a bit here, but generally victims, when it comes to murder trials, they aren't able to have a voice. But in this case, thanks to Alison's diaries and record keeping, she definitely was able to speak for herself. Absolutely. And that brings us to Friday, April 20, 2012. Jared Baden Clay gets up at his usual time of 6am he realises his wife, Alison, had already gotten up, so he goes through the house looking for her. 
Alison sometimes went for an early morning two-kilometre walk before their daughters got up, so he sends her a text message asking where she was. And then he goes into the bathroom for his normal morning routine of a shower and a shave. By the time he finishes, the three girls had already gotten up, but Alison still hadn't returned home. Jared, of course, tries to call her again, but there isn't any answer. And then he sends her another text message. Now, this was out of character for Alison. She had always gotten the girls ready for school and daycare, and she also had a big conference in the city that morning that she was looking forward to. The day before, she spent hours at the hairdresser getting her hair just perfect for the conference. When Alison still doesn't reply to any of Jared's texts or phone calls, he calls his parents. They don't live very far away and he knows that they can look for Alison while he stays with the girls. Because it's possible she may have fallen down and she was injured, maybe she had been hit by a car. I know if it was me, all the worst case scenarios would be going through my head. So Jared's father and sister hit the streets, but they can't find any trace of Alison. By this stage, it's 7am, so there is obvious panic. Jared calls Jared calls Triple O. Now you can listen to the Triple O conversation on YouTube. I will put the links up on our Facebook group because it is an interesting listen when we find out later what comes to light. And for those who don't know, Triple O is the Australian 911. The very first police officer at the scene arrived at 8 a.m. And very soon after he got there, he called in because he had gone to take the report of a missing woman who had gone off for a walk the night before. And what he sees are deep scratches on the side of the husband's face. He sees them straight away. Yeah, these were not small scratches. They no. are, they're not thin scratches. They're, they're fairly wide. They're running down his cheek. Two were long. And there's a small, a third smaller one kind of closer to his lip. Kind of more like he just, like a nick. Yes. He had shaved that morning and claimed he cut himself shaving, but I don't know, Allie, do Australians shave with pitchforks? Because that's the only way you would have gotten these scratches from shaving. That's the Australian way. I, w- I would think. So they did look rather suspicious to the police officer at the scene who had spent many years as a man shaving himself and called it in. I have to say I was really impressed with the police response because they immediately began to treat the home and the property like a crime scene. The police investigation here is one of the best I've ever seen. Yeah, unlike other cases we hear where half the neighborhood has been through the house of a missing child, this was handled very professionally. They locked the house down pretty quickly. Now, Jared said the last time he saw his wife was at 10 p.m. the night before. They did their little exercise of her getting to say whatever she wanted and ask questions and things were tense afterwards. So he went off to bed at about 10 p.m. and he left Allison watching TV on the couch. Jared was forthright with the police about their the state of their marriage. Allison had found out he was having an affair, He though he led the police to believe it was over, so he wasn't forthright about the state of his affair. But he did tell them that they were in counseling. But in spite of it, Allison was still distant. They were still struggling with their marriage. Now, that said, she was excited about going to a real estate conference that day. And she had got, like Allie said, she had gotten her hair done the day before for the occasion. She hadn't given any indication that she had one foot out the door or that she was looking to leave him. Anyone who knew Allison knew that she was extremely dedicated to her daughter's it was extremely out of character for her just to walk off. Yeah, had she decided to leave her husband, the kids would have been in the car with her when they when she left. Exactly. By about 11 a.m., at this point, Allison's parents, Jeff and Priscilla, are at the house as well, along with Allison's best friend. They later reported that they were shocked by how calm and casual Jared was acting. And it was at this stage that Jared told the police that he would not be providing a formal statement after advice from a lawyer. Something that struck Allison's parents as well was when they got there, he was dressed in a suit as if he was going to work. Now, I don't know about anyone else, but I think that if my husband went missing, I wouldn't have gotten dressed up ready to go to work. 
I would be a mess. And that he thought to call a lawyer. And now it's kind of hazy where and when and why this whole attorney came on the scene. Because if you think about it, he's having the chaos of his wife being missing. The police are all over his home and property. He has Allison's worried family, not to mention his own three young children who had to have been confused and scared at all the chaos. I'm sure when they're asking about these scratches, they might not have poker face, believe, you know, and it's obvious they don't believe him. So I can see that he would feel he was a suspect right away and maybe want to call an attorney, but I'm not entirely sure when he did it. He had two hours of pure chaos, yet he had time to call an attorney. I just, that seems kind of odd to me. I know I try not to judge how people react react during trauma, but he's he's pushing it for me. Um, I don't judge how people react. I mean, if he had left it a week and the heat was coming on him, I would understand him calling a lawyer. But within a couple of hours before the police had really spoken to him, that seems strange. When your spouse is missing, you need to give the police information. If you need to tell them what was she wearing, what you, you, there's lots of information that needs to be given right away. And to give some information, but then clam up and refuse to give any more, that just, that doesn't really make a lot of sense for someone dedicated to finding his wife. Now, to set the scene a bit, the Baden Clay house had no immediate neighbours. It had a church on one side and a childcare on the other side, both of which were empty when Allison disappeared. The area was quite residential, but there were some big properties as well with bush and dams attached. It's quite a wealthy area, so police went around to all the homeowners and asked them to search as much as they could, which they happily obliged. Neighbours gave differing reports of the night. One neighbour reported hearing a startled or shocked yell between 7.30 and 9.30. Another said it was more like 11pm and that the woman's scream was something that made her dog bark. I don't know. As I said, this area had sections of bush and is full of wildlife. And a neighbour's dog barking isn't the smoking gun it's made out to be as far as timelines go, in my opinion anyway. My neighbour's dogs bark at leaves blowing by, so, you know. Exactly. Four days into the search, the police asked Jared to make a public plea for Allison, like is typical in any missing persons case. Again, Jared mentions his gag order his lawyer has put on him, and he refuses. He doesn't want the public to be assessing his every move. Allison's parents end up agreeing to hold a press conference asking for Allison's return. And this press conference is among the hardest of any I've watched. Not only because I know now what's to come, but because they just seem so heartbroken and desperate. And it's giving me goosebumps just talking about it. It's kind of odd that he doesn't want to do this press conference because of how it might reflect on him, but not doing it also reflects on him. And this wouldn't be the only time Jared is uncooperative with the police, as you said before, Charlie. Obviously, the police needed a photo for the media and the missing persons posters, but the only photo Jared would give the police was a wedding photo from almost 15 years prior. They ended up getting a recent one from her parents. And just simple basic information like what was her walking habits? Did she have access to money? What was her mental state? Jared was refusing to answer anything. Jeff and Priscilla spoke to the media and they were spent the rest of the time camped out at the volunteer search headquarters, round the clock, waiting yep. for word about their daughter. The police said that they were the first ones there and the last ones to leave. And that's what you would expect. And like I said, hard to judge someone's response to trauma. We saw that with Lindy Chamberlain and with Mikkel Biggs' father. People sometimes act cold or sometimes they act angry and defensive. Sometimes they don't act the straight up sad that we think they should. Now that said, I've already said, Jared's response is really stretching my position on not judging people's response to trauma. It was so far outside of what you would have expected. And it shocked a lot of people. You know, he refused the plea to the media. He didn't participate in any of the searches. He wouldn't give the police a lot of information. He stayed mostly off the grid until some journalists camped outside his parents' house, caught him outside, and he made a brief statement 
about having to take care of his girls and trusting that the police were doing everything. Hiding out from the media, I don't find that suspicious. It's more the hiding out from the police that I'm not giving them information that I find suspicious. Now, another time the reporters were doing their, you know, those news grabs they do for the nightly edition where they're just kind of giving you the background of the area. And they were just taking some footage from outside the house. And Jared was getting some things out of the house, looked like toys and clothes and stuff. Now, Jared's parents were there. And they were standing in the garage, and the garage door was up. Now, in full view of the camera that they clearly knew was there, they started kissing. And I don't mean lightly. They were going for it. And again, trying not to judge how people deal with trauma, it's kind of hard when people act so inappropriately. Their daughter-in-law is missing. They have three grandchildren who have to be confused. And... They decide to make out in front of the cameras? Now, I know what his parents do shouldn't reflect on him, but it sure did. Between this behavior and Jared's lack of involvement in the search and those scratches, we'll come back to those scratches over and over again, this obviously raises suspicions with the police. And while they are searching for Allison, they're starting a parallel investigation into Jared's life and background. So we're going to bring up the scratches again. The police called Jared back into the police station because they want to get these scratches on camera just in case they need it for, you know, evidence. So Jared and his lawyer go into the police station. The investigators take photos of the scratches with a ruler beside them. Then they ask Jared to remove his shirt. On his chest, there are painful looking mass of scratches and bruises. There were more scratches on the left side of his neck and near his right armpit. Jared explains these as being from the day before Allison went missing, that he was at a cross-country event with his daughters and the caterpillar fell from the tree and down his shirt, that the caterpillar bit him and he must have had an allergic reaction to the bites. You, you have some crazy, crazy wildlife in Australia if caterpillar bites cause mass rashes across your chest. We have some crazy wildlife, but I don't think it's that crazy because when he's challenged on this later, there were tests done and there are no species of caterpillar that would cause a bite or reaction like that, at least in the area where the Baden clays lived. Jared then changes his story and says, you know what, it must have been a spider. After this, the investigators ask Jared to come back in for more photos because they think they're onto something and they want to examine his whole body for additional marks. This time is different, though. The investigators have a forensic procedure order, basically like a warrant, which means they don't need his consent. So if he was hiding any incriminating marks, the investigators had the green light to search him anyway. He couldn't refuse. Now, the media got wind of this, and they were waiting for him at the police station. So Jared saw this as he approached and kept on driving right on past the police station. He continued to drive into a bus interchange lane, and he crashed his car directly into a concrete pylon, instantly crumpling the hood of the car that he had borrowed from a friend. And he's taken to the nearest hospital for observation. Police obviously investigated the crash scene. And they couldn't see any cause for the crash. It was a straight road. Jared was familiar with it. It wasn't that far from where he lived. There were no other cars involved. And there were no skid marks to show that Jared even tried to prevent the crash. Yet, the crash also wasn't at a speed where he would have been seriously injured. So it doesn't match it like if it was a suicide attempt or something. So you can kind of just wonder if he was trying to give an excuse for any additional marks on his body. That's what I was thinking. As part of their investigation, the investigators went through Allison's car because maybe there was something in there that maybe indicated she was going to go missing voluntary. Even though at this stage, they kind of knew that wasn't the case. Now, Allison's car was bought straight off the showroom floor. It was brand new and she had only had it for about two months. The seats in the back of the car folded down to give you the boot area, which was the case when the police took Allison's car into evidence. And in the boot were a doll's pram and some other kids' toys. 
When these were moved, a plastic panel that was obscured by the toys had a dark stain on it, which looked like it was liquid that had dripped down towards the floor. As Alison had young children, they first assumed it could have been soft drink, which is quite reasonable. That's pretty much what's on the all over my car. Mostly juice boxes. Mine too. The liquid is tested, though, and immediately comes up positive for human blood. Next, luminol was used on the rest of the car, and those who have listened to our Whitman episode, we did discuss luminol in depth there. But basically, luminol is a chemical that reacts when it comes into contact with blood. So when luminol is added to the back panel area, the whole side lights up. There was a solid large stain and two drips trailing towards the floor. There were no other blood found in the car, but a single strand of blonde hair was found. On Monday, April 30th of 2012, Daryl Joyce, he had just started his annual leave from work. And he was an avid kayaker. He did his usual kayak on Kalu Creek at about 10 a.m., except nothing about this day ends up to be his usual. Halfway through his normal route, he saw a body of a woman lying on her side on the muddy banks under a bridge. At first, Daryl thought she was sleeping because of how she was just kind of laying on her side. So he drifted closer to see if she was okay. And he actually realized exactly who it was. He knew it was Allison Baden Clay because of her clothing. The police, like I said, this investigation, amazing. They had set up a mannequin in the same basic clothes that Jared said Allison was wearing when he last saw her. And Joyce had passed that mannequin enough times that he saw her, you know, cut off capri pants and just knew it was her. Based on her pose and the decomp smell, he knew she was dead. And not recently. In an interview, he said that it was near impossible to stop in that spot on his kayak with the direction he was going. And the bank was very difficult to access by foot. And he also didn't have his phone with him in the kayak. So he turned back to the boat ramp where he was parked and he called the police. Something immediately worth noting of the location, especially if we're talking about Allison walking off that night... The distance between the creek and Allison's home would have been like a three-hour, narrow and windy walk because no one saw her walking and her husband had gotten up at 6 a.m. and she was gone. This would have been a dark, pre-dawn walk. It would mean that she would have had to start walking, I don't know, at least two or three o'clock in the morning. Yes. You would think. Uh, yeah, in narrow windy the place was difficult to access by foot it nothing about where she was found makes it sound like she got there on her own and as you said you couldn't get to that bank by foot right the autopsy report came back with no obvious cause of death and there were no obvious fractures even though investigators believed that allison was thrown off the bridge There was no evidence of strangulation, there was no evidence of sexual assault, and her lungs were clear, which ruled out drowning. There was a possible subdural hemorrhage to the brain that may have been due to an impact to the head, but death due to this takes hours after impact, and police didn't believe this was the cause of death because there was no fracture to her skull. Alison also had a chipped tooth. However, there was no evidence whether this was something that she had previous to this. And finally, there was a bruise or possible hemorrhage to the left inner chest wall that may have been due to an impact to the chest, but no ribs were broken. Toxicology results were also inconclusive due to decomposition. The problem the coroner was facing was that Alison had been exposed to the elements for too long to be certain. Because even though it had only been less than two weeks since her disappearance, the mild Queensland weather combined with the temperate of the creek, decomp was faster than what was normally experienced. Life insurance companies generally ask to be told as soon as possible when a policyholder dies, but Jared took that advice to the extreme end of the range. On the day the body was found under Colo Creek Bridge, he contacted the insurers of the discovery. The following day, the day the autopsy was carried out, he further advised insurers he planned to claim on Allison's three policies, 
The body was not yet confirmed to be actually Allison, and he was contacting to claim on life insurance. And then Jared sought a death certificate as an urgent request. When he received it, he lodged claims on each of Allison's policies and asked that they be paid out to the tune of almost $1 million. And Jared, being the sole beneficiary of Allison's will, he sought to pocket the payout as long as he was not found to be involved in her death. Because of this, the DNA evidence and the blood evidence found in Allison's car, the net started to close in on Jared. After a forensic examination of Jared's phone, it showed that two days before Allison was reported missing, someone using his phone googled the words, quote, taking the fifth. Now, for those who don't know, this refers to the Fifth Amendment in the U.S. Bill of Rights for when a person can refuse to speak to the police or in court because their testimony can be used against them. You have the right not to self-incriminate here in the United States. Because of America's large export of movies and courtroom drama TV shows, it's a pretty well-known phrase in English-speaking countries outside the U.S., and I've heard people outside the U.S. use the term, I plead the fifth. Joking around, not in court. Obviously, our Constitution does not apply to anyone else. About six minutes before Jared called the police to report his wife missing, he apparently googled the term self-incrimination. That action itself was ironically incriminating, but he had an explanation for this. He said that a few days earlier, he had been watching one of the U.S.'s greatest courtroom drama shows, The Good Wife. Highly recommend it. It's a fantastic series. Unpaid endorsement. That is an unpaid ad for, for The Good Wife. He was watching it and he didn't know what the words meant, so he looked them up. Not entirely sure how he didn't know what the words self-incrimination meant. But what he said is he hadn't used the browser on his phone in those couple of days. So when he opened the browser to find the non-emergency number for the police, because he was going to call that before he called triple zero, the page reloaded so it looked like a new search. It's actually a pretty creative excuse because I could actually buy it, except I don't know why he wouldn't know what that term meant. But, I mean, it, it is kind of a sensible excuse. But surely they can look on his phone and see that he used the browser other times. I'm sure they could because the Police Electronic Evidence Examination Unit did discover an inconsistency with Jared's story with his phone. Jared originally told police he went to bed at 10pm that night and he slept through to 6am and that's when he realised Allison was missing. But there is a little known feature to the iPhone which leaves an electronic mark when it's plugged into the charger. Well, it just so happens that Jared's phone showed it was connected to a charger at 1.48am and that's when he says he was asleep. So based on all of this, with the affair with Tony as a possible motive for murder along with the insurance payout of almost a million dollars. So on June 13, 2012, Jared Baden-Clay was charged with the murder of his wife. And because this was a murder charge with life imprisonment on the table, and with the growing amount of strong circumstantial evidence, bail was denied. And I think it's interesting to note that the amount of the three life insurance policies came really close to the amount he was in debt for. It's interesting because not long before she disappeared, Allison had actually contacted one of the insurance companies to decrease the life insurance because of their financial difficulty. And before that could happen, that's when she disappeared. The first trial got underway on Tuesday, June 10, 2014. Now, as I said at the top of the episode, we do have three trials here. A lot of what was put forth in the first trial was said in the second and the third trial. So we won't repeat ourselves and bore you with a lot of legal jargon. We will present each side argument in the first trial and then any new information that is brought up in the preceding trials. Defendants in cases like this are often advised to consider pleading guilty to a lesser charge like manslaughter. There is always the argument to be made that Allison was accidentally killed during a heated fight. It's not like they didn't have plenty to argue about. And it would be harder for the prosecution to prove intent for the murder charge if Jared claimed that it was a heat of the moment accidental killing. 
and without a definitive cause of death, this wouldn't have been that hard to argue. And a guilty plea to manslaughter would have worked in his favor because instead of a minimum of 15-year non-parole sentence, it would have been down to eight years. And also, if you think about it, when one of the things that goes a long way towards getting granted parole is admitting guilt and showing remorse. So had he admitted that he had a role in her death and got the manslaughter, it's a solid possibility he would have been out in those eight years. He may have even actually got less. Right. On good behavior, yep. He could have been he could have gotten less and having three young daughters in the home who now have no parents, it it all would have gone a long way towards him getting a much lighter sentence. Exactly. Jared's defense team tested the waters in the bail hearing, providing an alternative theory that this was possibly a suicide. Allison had the history of depression and anxiety, and the affair was devastating to her and her self-image. Add in an empty container that had held her anti-anxiety medications, and possibly she walked to the creek and overdosed. How she got down that embankment, nobody knows. This was further supported by Jared's father, Nigel, when he took the stand. He said that he believed Allison was depressed because her clothes were, quote, dull in nature, and that they were all black or brown or cream. She didn't own anything bright in her wardrobe. Seriously, though? This is an odd statement to me because I like to say that I dress in shades of dirt myself. I don't (laughs) wear bright clothing. They're just not for me. So this doesn't really persuade me. I know. If that was the case, the majority of people I know are severely depressed, myself included. But his family had more. They claimed that Allison would lie around the house, not do housework or care for the children appropriately. She didn't want to attend social functions and would send Jared and the kids alone. This isn't backed up by anyone else or any of her friends or family members. This is just Jared's family's interpretation. Now, Allison's family also testified, and one of the main points from their testimony is that Allison would do anything to keep Jared happy. And her friends confirmed this. I saw one news article that described Allison as the person who said yes, even when she wanted to say no. Much of their marriage, including actually getting married, was driven by what Jared wanted. She wanted to make her marriage work so badly that she'd go alone to a marriage counselor when he didn't want to go. She even injected fat blasters into her arms, trying to lose weight, because Jared said her weight was her weight gain was a turnoff and he would make fun of her appearance. And her weight gain was mostly due probably to her depression, which she did have, possibly the anti-anxiety medication she was taking, and also she had three children in a short amount of time. And something else that was quite unusual in this case was that Jared actually took the stand in his defense. That is something... That is definitely something that wasn't expected and something that is uncommon in such a high-profile case. Not that anything he said anyway proved his innocence. He went off on tangents when he was asked simple questions, and he didn't really provide anything of worth for the defence's case. I would have expected, of course, he would have taken the stand if he was arguing the it was an accidental death or it was a self-defence, she attacked me, look at all these scratches on my body. Like, Had he had an affirmative defence saying... I killed her, but I have mitigating circumstances. I could have seen him taking the stand. But when he's saying, I just didn't do it, I I just, I get the feeling. And I did watch all those. I don't know why I would watch so many things of a guy I disdain, but I watched a lot of his interviews and he's extremely arrogant. I truly think he thought he could get up there and talk his way out of it. I read that at their wedding, his wedding speech went for 40 minutes. And he talked about his mommy and daddy in it. Like, yes, he actually calls them his mummy and daddy, a grown man. And yeah, I really don't like this guy. But one of the other things, one of the real estate people that interacted with him said that he had a very superficial charm that would kind of drag people in right away. But once you got past that, people didn't like him. People could see through it. And so I think he thought maybe that charm would get him... If he could make it last as long as he was on the witness stand, he may have been able to talk his way out of it. It's like he wanted to be a sociopath, but he didn't quite make it. No, uh, he, he lacked the intelligence that, that you need. 
The Crown case was pretty simple. They focused on a handful of key points. The first was that Jared's scratches weren't razor cuts, but were inflicted by Alison, which, I mean, we've talked about it at length. It, they don't look like razor cuts. I will put the picture on Instagram. It's pretty obvious that someone scratched him. Especially considering we aren't talking about one scratch, there are a number of deep scratches down his face parallel to each other. And if you were to cut yourself once, I highly doubt you would go and do the same injury again to yourself. The Crown Star witness for the trial was a botanist, Dr. Gordon Geimer, who was there to discuss the six species of plant found in Alison's hair. He did an extensive survey of the area the Baden Clays lived in, as well as surrounding areas, including the spot where Alison was found. And he concluded there was a 500 to 1 chance of all six species being found in the one place. Where Alison was found, for example, there were two species. However, in the Baden Clays backyard, all six species were present. So the Crown argued that Jared had suffocated Alison and then dragged her toward the car, causing the leaves to get stuck in her hair, and then transported Alison to the creek in the car, which would explain the blood in the back of her car. And then finally, the Crown came back to the affair he was having with Tony McHugh and the looming date to end his marriage, as well as the financial pressure he was facing. The Crown argued that this made more sense than Alison committing suicide because she was managing her depression well by this stage. As I mentioned earlier, she seemed in control and went and sought help when she needed it. Alison's psychiatrist testified that Alison had visited him just prior to her disappearance. And even under the circumstances, her anxiety and stress were completely normal and that she seemed positive for the future, that she was confident of her marriage surviving the odds stacked against her due to the affair. I really like that this case was cracked by a forensic botanist. I That really feeds like my nerdy side. And one thing that, to kind of go a little bit further on that, he did say that on that three-hour walk she would have had to take to get to the creek, she would have passed all of those species, but... When you're walking and you get a leaf in your hair, you brush it out of your hair. You don't walk around collecting leaves to your hair. So it's very obvious she got them in one spot right before, right after she died, because otherwise she would have brushed them out of her hair. I found that interesting as well. The most uncoolest of all forensic experts cracked the case. Yeah, it was pretty cool. The trial took about a month and the jury took four days to deliberate and they made their decision shortly before 11 a.m. On July 15, 2014, Jared Baden-Clay was found guilty for the murder of his wife. Allison's family shouted out their relief when the verdict was read. In sentencing, Justice John Byrne said Allison's death was not premeditated but was violent and that his actions after the murder showed his lack of remorse he was sentenced to life imprisonment with a non-parole period of 15 years. Part of the sentencing was that Jared would serve his time without any contact with his daughters, and they were placed in the care of Allison's parents. Allison's parents were then the beneficiaries of the life insurance policies, but they couldn't collect until Jared's appeals were exhausted, because if he was exonerated, he would be the one who collected it. Now, I have to say, I actually disagree that this was not a premeditated murder. I don't know that Jared planned to do it that night, but I think he planned to do it. I did read and the person he said it to did laugh it off, but he did mention to a co-worker, how much would you charge to get rid of my wife? I've seen people say, well, he had his mistress, he had his wife, he didn't need to kill her, but he didn't have that million dollars. And I really do think that was his out and that he did it before she could decrease the insurance policies so that their premiums weren't so high because I mean a million dollars on someone who's not working and contributing to the house is pretty high it for for people who are financially struggling so it makes sense she would she would want to lower it and then right as she's wanting to lower it is when she dies I think maybe that night they got into an argument and that gave him I don't know the anger the impulse whatever to do it that night but I do think he was planning on it. And they were in huge financial stress. The business was all but broke. 
They were renting. They didn't own their own house. They had no assets. If Alison did leave him and take the kids, then he would have to pay child support, which he couldn't afford. His mistress was pressuring him to end the marriage. I think it just all had become too much, and I think it was something that he was considering for a while. So an appeal is exactly what happens next. Jared's legal team immediately launches into an appeal to the verdict. And this appeal was based on four grounds, namely that the verdict of murder was unreasonable and that it was possible that he did unintentionally kill her and then he disposed of her body out of panic. Yes, the very thing the defence refused to even entertain during the trial, they were now using for the appeal. They were filing the appeal to get the conviction downgraded to manslaughter. And this is extremely unusual. Usually when someone appeals a conviction is to have the conviction quashed. But this wasn't the case here. I imagine this was because Jared and his legal team would have known there was no chance of a not guilty verdict on appeal, not with all that circumstantial evidence against him and the fact the defence had nothing new to show anyone else was responsible for Alison's murder. But I think his arrogance meant he had to try something. Yeah, and I've never heard of this happening in the U.S. that someone's conviction wasn't... Like here, if you appeal generally, like you said, your conviction is either upheld or overturned, not downgraded to a different charge. I actually Googled to try to find more cases of this, and every... I was telling you earlier, every result was this case. The first two pages is all Jared Baden-Clay. Yes. The other reasons for the appeal revolved around the trial judge not directing the jury over evidence involving the blood in the car, the placement of the body, and the scratches on Jared's face, all of which the defence called a miscarriage of justice. They argued since there was no blood found in the home and there was no evidence of a clean-up, that this supported more of Jared accidentally killing Alison during a heated argument more than the actual intent to murder her. And the problem with the murder verdict and proving there was no intent was the fact that there was no recorded physical violence in the relationship. There was occasion that Alison's mother suspected there was because Alison would have strange bruising on her arms, but Alison would never admit that they were caused by Jared. Something that I didn't mention earlier, but something Priscilla Dickey brought up in the first trial After the birth of their first child and when Alison was suffering from postpartum depression, Jared would work from home in the garage and he put baby monitors in every room of the house. He said that this was so all Alison would need to do is call and he could come and help. But Priscilla indicated that Alison had said that this was so Jared could listen to her conversations and that they would need to go outside to talk privately. Something that stood out to investigators when they went through the house when Alison went missing, that there were still baby monitors throughout the house, even though their children were school-aged. And I think one of the difficulties with proving or disproving physical abuse is it's very easy to hide physical abuse. A lot of times it's shoving, grabbing, like grabbing her arms, pinning her down, that would have left her with those bruises on her arm. It's not always getting like what you would think of as like a beating or getting punched in the face. A lot of times it's it's more subtle and you can hide a couple of bruises with long sleeves. Yeah, and as Priscilla said, there was bruising to the arms. It's not hard to wear a long sleeve top. It's not hard to wear a long top to cover stomach bruises, long pants to cover leg bruises. So due to there being no evidence of intent, no documented evidence of violence in the relationship, and even though there were financial strains and with the affair, these weren't new things. They were existing and they were working on them. And the fact that Jared had contacted the police immediately after Alison went missing, and yes, while Jared did lie about the causes of the scratches on his face and he did try to hide Alison's body, it was reasonable that he was innocent of murder. So on December 8, 2015, the murder conviction was overturned and downgraded to manslaughter. And with time served, he may have been eligible for parole within a couple of years. And I do think there is an argument he could have made for manslaughter. It's just really surprising to me that they were able to make it on appeal when they never brought it up during the trial. 
especially since he took the stand in the first trial and argued that he wasn't involved. Right. And that can't, that's one of the restrictions on appeals in the U.S. is you can't appeal based on your defense strategy. So if your strategy is to deny, 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 that's considered a defense strategy and you can't appeal just because it didn't work. Exactly. In an unusual move by the Queensland Director of Public Prosecutions, they appealed this downgrading to the high court because in their view, there was a strong motive for murder with the pressure from Jared's mistress and the significant gain from the life insurance solving all of his financial problems. In front of five high court judges, they heard the same evidence that was presented in the first trial and in the appeal. Unfortunately, this meant the family had to relive again all those details of how Allison was found and how she had been treated during her marriage. Allison's diary entries were a big part of the earlier trials. We talked about what she, you know, how she poured her heart into them as though they were her therapy. And some of the things in there were about how he berated her, telling her that she smelled bad, laughing at her advances and wanting to have physical intimacy with him criticizing pretty much everything she did, from the food she cooked, how she kept the house, how she cared for the children. And the heartbreaking part about this is reading Allison blame herself for it, that she wasn't doing enough, she wasn't trying enough. And it was making her more determined to fix the problems in the relationship when I'm going to go out on limb here and say that he was the problem in the relationship. A hundred percent. Her diary should be included in textbooks teaching people how to identify psychological abuse. On August 31st, 2016, the five high court judges voted unanimously to reinstate the murder conviction. And Jared has not so far filed any further appeals. And I don't see him doing it. I think that it's quite clear he has nowhere else to go. Unless he could find some new evidence proving he didn't do it, I don't think he has any grounds to appeal anymore. And he's not going to find any because he 100% killed her. Yeah, that, that's the problem with proving you didn't do it when you did. There's not going to be evidence. I think something that becomes clear in this case is that domestic violence doesn't necessarily mean physical violence. Domestic violence can also be emotional abuse, psychological abuse, stalking, financial abuse, there isn't always visible signs that it's taking place. I mean, your neighbour or the parent you talk to at your children's school could be in a domestic violence situation and you may not know it. Alison's friends did not know what was going on in her relationship. Even after she found out about the affair, she didn't share it with anyone. Sadly, because it's not always obvious and there is a stigma on domestic violence, people don't always ask for support. I hear a lot in my day job people saying, why don't they just leave? Why don't they call the police? The thing is, it isn't always that easy. The abused person could blame themselves. They could worry about the safety of their children or themselves. They may not be able to afford to just pick up and leave. And again, in Alison's case, they may believe things are going to get better. The fact is, when an adult goes missing or is found murdered, the first suspect is, of course, their partner. Because in reality, the person is more likely to be killed by a partner or former partner than a stranger. I'm not sure what the I'm not sure what the statistics are like in the U.S., but in Australia, an average of one woman a week is killed by a partner or former partner, and one in four women have experienced some sort of domestic abuse from a partner or former partner. One of the things that I really think we need to talk about as we're talking about Allison and I know her friends they didn't think Jared treated her nicely they didn't think he was really good enough for her but they had no idea what was really happening but sometimes we do have an idea sometimes we suspect or we know we've witnessed I witnessed a friend like physically in a domestic violence situation in front of me and you don't know what to do Calling the police if someone is being physically assaulted is a pretty straight go-to, but it's not always that easy, and sometimes that can... Can make it worse. Yeah, that, yeah, it can make it worse. It makes more problems. So one of the best pieces of advice I have heard is from a domestic violence 
organization and it was on another podcast and I wish I could remember which one so I could go back and listen to it again. But what I took from that, having had friends in this situation and not knowing how to help, is it's really important to help your friend create a safety plan. Not everyone wants to leave the relationship. Not everyone has the resources, financial or emotional, to leave. And there's no judgment in this. You you have to block your judgment of their choices. And you need you need to help them be safe, even if they stay. So ask them what they need rather than tell them what they're supposed to do and help them come up with a plan. If they feel threatened and need to leave to stay safe for a night, where are they going to go? Help them come up with those ideas and where they can go. I had a friend being stalked by her ex-husband and I left a key under my mat because he didn't know where I lived that any time, even if I wasn't home, she could get into my house. Have the numbers for domestic violence shelters handy and... Just gently, you'd say, when you're ready, here's a phone call you can make. Go with them to the shelter or to the police or to a lawyer. It's really about making their safety the priority, regardless if they leave the relationship or not. Their safety is the priority. Judging them, shutting them down, or deciding to show them some kind of tough love only isolates them further and gives their abuser more control. I think that's a good point. It's easy to say, leave them, but you don't know what you would do in that situation if you're not experiencing it. Exactly. And so many people in these relationships, there is a financial imbalance where they're either a stay-at-home or part-time working parent and or the other parent simply just makes a lot more money than they do. There's a lot of threats. Kids are often held as as threats. It makes it that much harder when children are involved because it's not as easy as picking up and leaving. An abusive partner still has parental rights. And even in the worst of circumstances, sometimes good can come from it. In July of 2015, the Alison Baden-Clay Foundation was formed and their aim is to create a community that acknowledges the prevalence of domestic violence and family violence. They have regular events in Queensland to bring awareness and understanding of domestic violence. And they have some great resources into how to support someone you think may be in a domestic violence situation and organisations you can contact to help. It is an amazing website. And even if you don't live in Queensland, I recommend having a look. It's at alicebadenclayfoundation.org.au. But we will put links in our show notes and on our Facebook page. If you're experiencing domestic violence, don't think you have to go through this alone. In Australia, you can call 131114. That's 131114. Easy to remember. In the U.S., contact 1-800-799-7233. And if you're in the U.K., you can call 0808 2000 24724. And remember, if you feel threatened or that you're in immediate danger, just use the national emergency number for your country. To close out tonight, we have been going through our five-star reviews and patrons lately, but I think I'm going to go rogue this week. I just wanted to say a blanket thank you to everyone who has listened to our podcast, who subscribes, who goes to an effort to leave a review because iTunes, you don't make it simple. To everyone who joins our group, which is over a thousand members now, and they comment and share their stories and, you know, tweets Charlie or likes a photo on Instagram, sends us an email. We really appreciate it. Insight hit a million downloads last week, and it's very humbling. Going into this, I would have been over the moon with more than just our family and friends listening. So thank you to everyone. You are seriously the best listeners a podcast could ask for. And I keep forgetting, but thank you to Ben and Rosie from They Walk Among Us for mentioning us on their brilliant podcast. Seriously, if you are not listening, maybe wait till the end of this episode but download all of their episodes and thank us later. The cases they cover will keep you up at night. And thank you for the lovely email from the Mysterious podcast. They're a fairly new podcast and one of them are local to Charlie and they are just sweet, funny guys. I highly recommend their episodes on Johnny Gosh. 
and that should be enough to get you through until next Monday. So I think I've gushed enough for one episode, so housekeeping time. We are on Facebook. We have the page, and I mentioned the group before. Come and join. As I said, we have some great discussions there. We have a website, insightpod.com, where you can listen to all our episodes, read our show notes, read and listen to short articles. There are links to our Patreon for an ongoing monthly donation and PayPal for a one-off donation. Charlie is on Twitter at InsightfulPod. I'm on Instagram at InsightPod. And we both read your emails at InsightfulPod at gmail.com. We may take a couple of days to get back to you. We're getting a lot of emails now, but we do answer all your emails. And as always, please rate, review and subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast app.